0: This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Mourner. Maybe over the holidays you sat at the dinner table with someone you don't see eye to eye with politically. Rifts in the family have gotten a lot of attention since the presidential election, but there's been less focus on what the political divide looks like at work. How do coworkers who spend a good chunk of their lives together navigate things? That's the focus today and tomorrow of our series Breaking Bread. CPR's search for common ground. Today, Lydia Hooper and Chris Sixma-Long, who met years ago during work-study. Lydia speaks first.
1: We were both students at Auraria campus. I was at UC Denver, and Chris was at Metro State. So that was how we originally met. We
2: shared a very, very small office, and it was just meant to be.
1: When we first started working together, it was probably around the time of Obama's first election. And I campaigned for him. I was a huge Obama supporter, still am. And at some point, our conversation drifted into a political topic and we quickly got into batting heads. And what I have never said to you, Chris, since then, is it has always stuck with me how you reacted to that. Because after we fought and we kind of went our separate ways. You came back into the office that I was in and you said, I don't ever want to fight with you like that again. And I just – I think you taught me something about how to be a bigger person.
2: (laughs) I think that was one of the defining moments where I said, wow, this person meets all the – check marks on my list for being an awesome human being we're just not awesome in the same way (laughs) and I had to sit there and say she's intelligent she's articulate she's determined she's stubborn and I like stubborn and she's stubborn against me which I'm a pretty big personality for someone to actually just keep hitting their point home to me over and over again and not give in I was like
1: ooh, she's special (laughs)
2: And I think that's when I, I decided that I didn't ever want
1: to fight with you in that way. We don't have to let this become a reason that we're not friends.
0: But as you heard, their friendship formed before the 2016 election. So what happened after Donald Trump won? Here's Chris. I was happy. I voted for Trump.
2: And one of my first thoughts was, give Lydia a couple days to work through how she was feeling and it. I did call her. I wanted to make sure she was doing okay. I looked on Facebook and I had friends who couldn't get out of bed and they weren't feeding their children. and It was very dire on Facebook, And but I wanted to make sure she was doing okay. I wanted to see where
1: her head was at, and we, we had a good long conversation. Again, you teaching me how to be a bigger person. I honestly don't know if I would have thought to do the same thing if the election had gone the other way. I really did learn that you can just let people
2: They can be woven into your fabric and they can be woven in a different direction or they could be a color that you just didn't want in there. And and it's okay because at the end of the day, it all comes together and it's all beautiful. No, I just love you, Hoopster. Right back at you, girl.
0: Lydia Hooper, who voted for Clinton, and Chris Sixma Long, who supported Trump. They met at work where they learned to navigate their political differences. Tomorrow, we hear from Kalinas Newsom of Denver, one of our breaking bread participants, and her colleague, Brian Yates.
3: I'm like 99.9% sure.
0: <laughs> sure of what? He's <laughs> <is> a Republican. <laughs> that he's a Republican. Oh,
4: yeah. You have to be.
0: Why? Why just do I have to
4: cause, be? Because you just are.
0: Because I'm white?
4: <laughs> <laughs> so I think, that he's, I think that he's like a liberal Republican.
0: What if I'm ultra-uber-conservative?
4: I think I, that would not surprise
0: me. Despite their political differences, the two are able to talk about really charged topics.
4: It's kind of weird a little bit. I mean, because I do have these preconceived notions and ideas about white men and white maleness. And we talked about that a couple of times. We did. And pretty vocally.
0: Very yeah. in-depth. Yeah. And, yeah. and openly. Mm-hmm. That's tomorrow in our series Breaking Bread, plus advice when things aren't so harmonious in the workplace. On Monday, New Year's Day, some workers in Colorado will get a pay raise. The minimum wage in this state will increase 90 cents to 10.20 an hour. If you're a tipped employee, it goes up to 7.18. This is all because voters here passed a law that gradually increases the minimum wage. So how is it working out? We're going to get two perspectives. First, Michelle Webster is with the Colorado Center on Law and Policy, which supported the increase. Michelle, welcome to the program.
5: Thanks, Ryan.
0: Amendment 70 increases the minimum wage $0.90 a year until it reaches $12 an hour in 2020. Uh, What difference has it made so far from your perspective?
5: Yeah, so we heard uh, quite a number of dire predictions about job losses. Um, that would occur if voters decided to increase the minimum wage. And what we've found, actually, is that the Colorado economy has been quite strong. Uh, Job growth has been robust, even in industries with the most low-wage workers, like the restaurant industry, for example. So in 2017, the state added about 56,000 jobs, including about 4,000 jobs in the restaurant industry, And Colorado continues to be in the top 10 states for job growth. And then in terms of wages, we don't have full data yet on what the effect has been on wages. But what we do know is that looking at wage trends over time, that this um, increase was badly needed in the state. And that's because wages for workers, the lowest paid workers in the state, have been flat. In this post recession recovery period through 2016, and are essentially the same as they were compared to 2000 after adjusting for inflation, even though the cost of living has increased in the state.
0: So, so those, those are the, sort of the the, the yeah. big picture figures. Um, but is it possible that in different parts of the state the, the picture is a bit different? So one of the criticisms was that the minimum wage increase would hit rural areas hard. Uh, is there a distinction to be made between say the front range um, and rural areas?
5: Yeah, I mean, so far, what we're hearing and what we're seeing in the data that we have available, is that in this first year of the uh, increase in the minimum wage, that it's it's been a net positive across the state. And, you know, we did spend some time looking at what the possible effect would be if um, we raised the minimum wage, you know, looking at what the dif- difference is between r- rural areas and urban areas in the state and found that, you know, urban area or sorry, rural areas, um, needed this raise too. That that folks in rural areas were falling behind just as much as people in urban areas.
0: We heard from a nonprofit in Montrose, Colorado, called Community Options. It serves people with developmental disabilities, and it depends on money from the state and from Medicaid, which is apparently not keeping up with what it must now pay employees, in part because of the new minimum wage. Here's Executive Director Tom Turner. This trajectory is not sustainable. Amendment 70, philosophically, is a very nice thing. But for nonprofits, school districts, etc., that don't have a product to sell or prices that they can raise to increase revenue, it's a pretty scary scenario. Turner says that community options is rapidly depleting savings that had been built up over 45 years, and that group homes and residential settings have closed. Uh, are businesses like Tom Turner's the collateral damage from the minimum wage increase? Do you think, Michelle?
5: Well, I think that points to something that um, that we we do need to have a conversation about in this in this state, that there are um, places within the state budget that need to increase um, to, to help nonprofits who who are having more, may have a more difficult time um, adjusting to the increase in the minimum wage. So I do I mean, I I do feel sympathetic to that. And I think it's it's something that we do need to pay attention to and to figure out how we can be responsive to.
0: I'll say that Medicaid in particular already eats up a significant portion of Colorado's budget. Uh, Michelle, hang on the line for me because I want to bring in Sonia Riggs for a different perspective. She's president of the Colorado Restaurant Association, which campaigned against the minimum wage increase in Colorado, saying jobs would disappear, prices would increase. And Sonia, what do the industry numbers show a year later for restaurants?
4: Well, restaurants have been particularly hit hard with this increase. And it's, it's specifically because of the wage disparity that we typically see between the front of the house and the back of the house employees. So, so those who
0: are tipped and those who are not?
4: Right. Um, because up until the 10th Circuit Court ruled back in June, it was illegal for you to, servers to share their tips with the folks in the back of the house. Uh, so that was preventing that It was exacerbating that wage gap. So what happened with this minimum wage increase was that the folks in the back of the house, like dishwashers and cooks, were already making typically well above minimum wage. I've heard stories of $15 an hour to start for a dishwasher. But servers who were technically being paid that smaller amount, the tipped minimum wage, would walk home with $25 25 to $45 an hour, typically the highest paid people in the restaurant. So now they are getting a mandated increase and those folks in the back of the house are not. Furthermore, because we're seeing restaurants being forced to increase prices and tipped uh, servers typically get Uh, Tips based on a percentage of the overall bill. As those prices increase, they're getting another raise because of that. So that's creating a
0: disparity. Mm -hmm. What is the effect of that on a restaurant, on its ability to operate? I can understand there being some frayed nerves maybe between front and back of house, but do you know of restaurants that have closed or changed the way they operate? Uh, can you give me a picture here? We
4: do. We, I know of, of some restaurants that have closed. Um, typically, what we're seeing is a combination of things in, in restaurants dealing with this these increases because labor costs tend to be one of the biggest cost um, centers in a restaurant. But they, we've seen a combination of increased prices. We have seen a change in staffing levels. They're really trying to be as efficient as they can, a de- decrease in hours. We're also seeing technology being implemented really around, around the country. Uh, you're seeing... People ordering their food via kiosks in fast food restaurants or even, uh, you know, some of the restaurants that are sit down, you'll see iPads at the table that they can
0: order. Let's uh, break that apart a little bit. So I I think of those tablets that Chili's has had since 2014. Is that really a function of the minimum wage or is that where Fast Casual was heading?
4: It, It is actually a function. People are trying to find creative ways to deal with ever increasing costs because you can only raise prices so much before customers will stop coming. So this is one way that it does allow them to have fewer people working.
0: Okay. So you're saying that that transition would not have been, what, as fast or as widely adopted without an increase in the minimum wage? Yes, I I think so. Okay. Then you said you know of restaurants that have closed. That you can attribute to the minimum wage. Of course, lots of restaurants well, don't succeed.
4: we we talk to many restaurants every day, and we'll hear from people. I just, I finally, it's just too difficult to to deal with this. When oftentimes I hear stories of owners who aren't are, are making less than their employees, and they have to they have to feed their family as well.
0: And yet, Colorado's unemployment rate is two point seven percent right now, and restaurants are doing quite well. The Leeds School of Business at CU Boulder. Released its annual economic outlook and says of the restaurant industry, projected sales for 2018 will be more than 12 billion, a 40% increase since 2010. Doesn't sound like restaurants are hurting.
4: Well, of course, those numbers are going to go up as prices increase, right? The, that revenue is going to continue to increase. Um, there's no doubt that more people are moving to Colorado all the time, and certainly we're seeing that growth. In talking to restaurateurs, though, a number of them are saying year over year when they look at their profit and they look at how how business is doing and, and even generally in revenue that those those numbers are just not holding up.
0: Not all restaurants in Colorado opposed the minimum wage Increase? Edwin Zoe owns Zo Mama restaurants in Boulder and at Denver Union Station, and he's part of a consortium called Good Business Colorado, which favored the hike. And uh, he takes exception with making a connection between the fast-casual concept that we mentioned earlier and the increase in the minimum wage.
4: The reality is that fast-casual
6: is one of the fastest-growing segment of the hospitality industry, not because of the wages. Fine dining or full-service in my opinion, is not going away, that the numbers certainly, I think, would bear that out. You just look at how many restaurants opened, know, full-service restaurants opened last year. It was record.
4: So to use that as as an argument that somehow it hinders that, I just don't find that to be true.
0: I mean, isn't the market in some ways headed towards the Chipotle's that aren't necessarily staffed in the way a traditional restaurant would well, be? Well,
4: service models are one thing that we're seeing restaurants go to in the changing the way that their service models work. We're seeing traditionally chef driven restaurants that were full-service restaurants changing to counter-service, for example. But all of this is happening as they're adjusting to to revenue and these increased costs that they're needing to, to deal with.
0: Michelle, uh, back to you at the Colorado Center on Law and Policy. Is it possible, you paint a fairly rosy picture of what the minimum wage increase has meant, is it possible that as it continues to increase towards the $12 mark, uh, that the picture might change, do you think? Well, I
5: think... I think that it's possible that there will be some businesses that find it difficult to absorb the increase. But on the whole, um, since we're focused on the restaurant industry here this morning, um, you know, things look really good. And I I just want to lift up a couple more numbers from the Leeds School of Business report. Um, This is something that I found astounding, that the restaurant industry for 17 consecutive years up to 2016 has had the strongest job growth in the state. It's outpaced the overall economy job growth in the state. And they've had eight consecutive years of sales growth. And then finally, the Rocky Mountain region is outperforming the rest of the country in restaurant sales. So, you know, I have no doubt that there might be You know, there are some uh, restaurants that might be struggling, but on the whole, the industry is doing really quite well, and that our our community really depends on these, these jobs. And the industry itself, I think, depends on people earning enough money so that they have some disposable income and can spend it in their communities, including in restaurants.
0: Sonia, I'll give you the last word in about 30 seconds.
4: Well... You know, it's great that the Colorado economy is doing so well. At some point, we're going to see that leveling off. And I just would would remind people that as, as they see these changes continue to happen, they're going to notice that restaurants are going to see increased prices and some staffing level changes and changes in models. So it's just a different dynamic than what we've seen in the past.
0: Sonia Riggs, president of the Colorado Restaurant Association, Michelle Webster with the Colorado Center on Law and Policy, reflecting on the first year of the state's new minimum wage. And next week, it increases again to $10.20. What's been your experience, if you've had one, with the minimum wage? Reach out to us, news at CPR.org, news at CPR.org, or you can tweet at Colorado Matters. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. And do you recognize this song? Yo
6: ho ho We the char and play, it's, nice. up, we're
0: it's the right theme to the pirates, the pirates of the Caribbean ride at Disneyland, and it was co-written by a Coloradan. Francis Xavier Atencio was born in Walsenburg in 1919 and helped shape what some of Disney's most famous films looked like, Pinocchio and Fantasia, and rides as well, Pirates of the Caribbean and The Haunted Mansion. He passed away earlier this year at age 98, and we are remembering fascinating Coloradans who died in 2017. So I'm joined now by one of Atencio's daughters, Judy Ann. Welcome to the program. Thank you. Your father has been called an enormous talent by Disney himself. He was inducted as a Disney legend in 1996. Tell me about Francis Xavier X for short. X. X. What took him from a small Colorado town to working with Walt Disney?
7: Art school. He grew up in Walsenburg, attended St. Mary's High School there. And when he graduated, he went to California to go to Chouinard Art Institute. And his aunts, who also were born and raised in Walserburg, had already moved to Los Angeles. And I asked him once, why did they move to Los Angeles, to Hollywood? He said, I think they read all those movie magazines and decided <laughs> that that's where they wanted to be. So he had family already in Hollywood, and he went to Shenard and started art school there. And he wasn't there very long when a teacher suggested he submit his portfolio he said, "There's not a chance that they're going to hire me." And he was, he was wrong. And he was wrong. <laughs> and as he says, he ran all the way home to his aunt's house where he was living, screaming, "I got a job at Disney! I got a job at Disney!"
0: I'm assuming that you were a Disney kid.
7: Oh, completely and talentless, <laughs> which was our our joke. That really, none of us. I had. A, I have a late brother who had all the talent. But growing up at Disneyland was a, a pretty amazing life because we would not go through the front gates. We would drive backstage and walk through behind the Mad Hatters shop where all the characters came and
0: went. So, your father, X, had a hand in films like Mary Poppins, Babes in Toyland, Fantasia, and Pinocchio.
7: The
8: kids, the boys—they're all donkeys. Oh, you too! Come on, quick, before you get
4: any
0: worse. So this is Pinocchio's pivotal escape from Pleasure Island. Uh, what did your father do on these films? And I wonder if you can pick out his work when you watch them.
7: Only because he told told us which ones he did on Pinocchio. He worked on he worked on the cat and the fish. On Fantasia, he worked on the dinosaurs and the, the mushrooms.
0: So the idea was, if you were an animator, you were sort of committed to a, a character or maybe like a series of images, huh? Well,
7: and on those early films, he was um, an in-betweener, which took them from this movement to this movement, but somebody had to draw all of that in between. By hand. By hand. So he did that on those films. And Mary Poppins, he created the stop action of cleaning up the nursery scene. <laughs> And on uh, Babes in Toyland, he did the stop action on the Parade of Toys.
0: And the cool thing about uh, Mary Poppins in particular, of course, is the blend of live action and animation.
7: It was. And he, same with, with Babes in Toyland, right, where they right. had the March of the Toys. In fact, after he passed and we archived his studio, we found a memo from Walt, to him, asking him to please work on this one section of the film, and thought he would be great at doing that,
0: so Walt Disney not only knew of your father but kn- knew your father were they close?
7: He knew him as a as one of his key employees was the term at the time, but yes knew him knew him well and uh, very encouraging to him, and he would tell the story that that Walt recognized talent in people that people didn't know they had. Oh, that's lovely. Which was fascinating. And when Walt sent him to work at Imagineering, my father was crushed. He didn't want to leave the studio. Ah, and he be- didn't want to leave Walt.
0: Because he loved being an animator. He did. And and being an Imagineer meant that he was going to help shape the theme parks, essentially. Right? He was. Yeah. While he's an Imagineer, he writes... Yo-Ho, A Pirate's Life for Me, for the Pirates of the Caribbean ride. And he writes this song from Disneyland's Haunted Mansion. On a crypt door's creak and the tombstones quake. The late, happy
6: haunts materialize. And begin to vocalize. Grim-grim ghosts, i out how to, to
3: socialize. socialize. Now don't close your eyes and
0: don't I can't tell you how much hide. I loved the Haunted Mansion as a kid. It's great. I grew up- great. in Southern California. And hearing that made me so... Wistful, so nostalgic.
7: Well, and he not only wrote the songs for the pirates in the Haunted Mansion, he wrote the scripts for the ride. So the way that the, the ride flows and what's being said and what the scenes are, what they're saying in the scenes is what he wrote.
0: Because uh, there are often, I guess they were animatronics talking to you throughout. It was this engaged experience all along the ride. It
7: was. And when he wrote the script and then he heard it recorded... And Walt was listening to it, X said, I'm sorry, you can't hear what they're saying. This doesn't work. And Walt said, no, it's like when you're at a party, at a cocktail party, and you can hear a conversation over here, or maybe somebody behind you was talking, and you're hearing bits and pieces of everything, and it makes you want to go again to hear what they were
0: saying. Ah, so the fact that you couldn't hear everyone at the same time clearly to Walt Disney was a magnet. Mm -hmm. Yeah, an attraction. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and we are remembering the late Francis Xavier Atencio, who was a Disney Imagineer. He grew up in Walsenburg, Colorado, and he's one of the fascinating Coloradans who died in 2017 that we are remembering as the year comes to a close. I'm joined by one of his daughters, Judy Ann. Uh, I understand that your dad's voice can still be heard on the Pirates of the Caribbean ride. He's the voice of a skeleton head at the very beginning of the ride.
5: Set culture together and keep your ruddy hands inboard. that be the best way to repel borders.
6: And mark well-me words, mateys. Dead men tell no
2: tales.
0: <laughs> when you lose someone... Does it make it easier or harder that their voice and their influence is so widespread?
7: Oh, hugely. It's so hard even to express how important it was to all of us to realize how many people appreciated what he did and to know that it lives on. And to think of these films that he worked on, Winnie the Pooh and Pinocchio and Fantasia, and that... It lives on and that his grandchildren's grandchildren will be able to see that. And I think it was really comforting a few days after he had passed to be reading the news accounts about his life and about his his legacy because it made us feel so good that he had been remembered in such a
0: way. Mm -hmm. You mentioned earlier that you got special access to Disneyland in the early days. Uh, that you got through a a back entrance, and I suppose to some extent you were able to see the the seams of the place. What stands out from maybe those early visits to Disneyland?
7: Going to see what he had created was very, very cool to get to be part of it, know what went into it, and ride the rides. I remember riding the Haunted Mansion for the first time with him, and all of us sing, How did you do this? How did that happen? Uh-huh. What was that? And being able to
0: This is the ride by the way where the ghosts appear in your car, right? Right. Was that that was true from the earliest days?
7: From the earliest days uh-huh. and they had my sister Tori and I had seen the movie The Haunting and it was a scary movie. And when we after we saw it and he was working on the on the mansion, we told him about this movie and he went and got the movie and they all sat in one of the sweat boxes over at the studio and watched it and picked out some pieces of it because there was a very big disagreement on whether or not the haunted mansion should be scary or funny it's so there're a, a little a bit, bit, bit of, of both, both? Yes.
0: yes yes that's a tough thing to pull off isn't it it
7: was and then they they always you know had those easter eggs in there where they had you know the headstones with their names on it um,
0: easter eggs are like little hidden winks that uh, people inside who make jokes. movies or rides put in the rides. The, ride. the yeah. inside
7: jokes. And at one point when they changed the outside of the the mansion to put in more cue lines, the guys were able to take their tombstones home with them. And at our house, it was behind the diving board of the pool.
0: Talking about a tombstone here when we are speaking of your late father.
7: My father found that tombstone to be oh so funny. And it read, "Requiescat, Francis Xavier no time off for good behavior. <laughs> so, and at the haunted mansion, you know, the the line was always 999 Happy Haunts. Maybe you'll be 1000. So, when we did the the program for his memorial service, there's a picture of of X um, standing next to the tombstone, and at the back it said Happy Haunt number 1000.
0: Thanks for being with us.
7: Thank you for remembering him.
0: Judy Ann Atencio's father, Francis Xavier, was a Disney Imagineer. X, as he was also known, was born and raised in Walsenburg. He died in September at age 98. And that conversation is part of a year-end series remembering fascinating Coloradans who died in 2017. Hear about others at (laughs) CPR.org. An anonymous artist has painted intricate images all over Boulder. Cats, human faces, including a portrait of Vincent van Gogh. These paintings are signed Smile. He's got a fan base, but he may be violating Boulder's graffiti ordinance. Let's listen back to our conversation, a listener favorite from 2017. We masked Smile's voice, and it makes him sound really ominous. But when I sat across from him, he came across as a really nice guy. Thank you for being with us. Oh, thank you for having me. Why did you pick the name Smile for yourself? Well, you
6: know, I thought of a lot of different monikers, but basically, my idea behind the name is, you know, I want to bring people into the moment. I want them to see stuff, you know, randomly on a mailbox or anything in the middle of town and smile, you know, forget about whatever they're worried about or whatever they're ruminating about in the future and just be present for one, you know, five second stretch.
0: And part of that is putting art uh, perhaps in places you don't expect it. Yeah, definitely. As we mentioned, your street art often features animals, cats in particular. Uh, You often paint faces as well, sometimes of famous people. Why does that kind of imagery appeal to you? Well, you know, it's like the
6: first thing I ever really drew. My mother still has it framed, in her house is me, basically my face on top of my cat. So, you know, it's just sort of like an intuitive thing where I've always loved doing it. I love cats. You know, I have a couple of cats now, and it's just basically
0: the things that make me happy, I like to present. You spent much of your childhood in Boulder, and uh, as you say, drew a lot as a kid. What attracted you, though, to street art? Was it that sense of surprise?
6: Yeah, you know, that's a a large part of it. Um, Basically, in my whole life, I've been into art. You know, when I was young, eighth, ninth grade, I was in art shows and so I saw that sort of the gallery side of the whole thing with dealing with curators, and I enjoyed it, but I felt a little bit like it was an antique market. It was something that has been around since, you know, 500 years, 600 years, and it just... Didn't really feel like the next step. Like so much stuff in our world now is moving on, you know, with technology. It felt stale to you. Yeah, that's exactly the case. And, you know, I also got a thrill, like, coming to Denver as a kid. My dad would bring me, like, to the zoo or a football game. And the thing that I remember is seeing graffiti.
0: How much of this is about the thrill of painting where many say you shouldn't? Well, that's a bigger thrill than, you know, I, I often try
6: to say it is. But my whole life, I've been a trickster, and it's fun. That's what I love to do.
0: I'm going to ask you more about your process in a bit, but uh, okay. I want to say that Boulder Law prohibits any form of, quote, painting, scratching, or coloring on private or public property without consent. Yeah. And police don't make distinctions, really, between street art and what some would call graffiti. Uh, so your art is considered illegal vandalism in Boulder. Does that give you pause? No, to be honest, not really. It doesn't. um, I don't know. I
6: feel like it's part of something that's just growing in terms of a lot of old laws, old customs are sort of outdated. And I try to be respectful. You know, I don't want to put it on people's private property. And I try to take into consideration the way it's going to affect, like, the immediate people that own the property or that use the area where I put the painting. So a lot of it, I do consider the community, but not the law.
0: But wait, you said that you avoid private property. Well, on a whole, I avoid private property
6: in terms of non-city, like somebody's car, somebody's home, somebody's garage, like a personal thing. If it's more, if it's like a corporate thing where, for instance, I see there's graffiti on the side of the building, they don't clean it off, they neglect it. Then to me, that's like, wow, you know, that's looks ugly right now. It's. A prime target to have something pretty on it. I guess you're right. I do draw a distinction between, like, different levels of private property.
0: But you seem to have something of, an, of your own ethic on this. It's not that you'll do this anywhere. Oh, yeah. No. yeah. Sean Marr is the CEO of Downtown Boulder, Inc., and uh, the group removes graffiti for its members in the business district around Boulder's Pearl Street Mall, for instance. Marr told The Daily Camera that many property owners have requested not to remove your work from their property. They seem to like it. But he also said that he'd prefer you get permission from those businesses before painting. What do you think about that? Yeah, you know, um,
6: that would be a step that I think would be more cooperative with the community. Uh, it's probably the kind of thing that people would expect me to do with the stance I have where I want it to be an integrated thing in the Boulder community, but you know, for some reason I'm just not taking that step.
0: I'll typically do it stuff. So if it's a liber- like E Town or if it's a liberal organization, so E Town is a, an environmentally minded broadcast radio broadcast that's taped in Boulder. Yeah. So you know, organizations like
6: that. That, for
0: instance, on their Instagram,
6: I've seen they post smile art or different factors will kind of lead me to say, hey, these people are going to appreciate it. They're going to enjoy it on the building. But you wouldn't get
0: E Town's permission. You know, I probably wouldn't okay. you know. What would you say to someone who hears this and thinks, uh, this guy's a punk? I would say, hey,
6: you know, you're entitled to your opinions. <laughs> I probably would say, I kind of think you're a punk for thinking mm-hmm. I'm a punk. But, you know, that's the way the world works. If you put yourself out there, you're going to step
0: on a couple toes and you're going to help people be happy. You know, it's give and take. So, interestingly, though you do street art, there was an exhibition of your work at a gallery in Boulder last July. And the Boulder Police Department dropped by a few times. I think hoping to run into you. Yeah. They instead wound up talking to the curator of the show. Partly, I think they want to step in and say, "What are you doing?" Yeah. And also, I'd put two or I'd put
6: two cats and a dog on a walking mall on some city-owned property, and apparently, they're very strict about street art on the actual brick walking mall. So they told the curator, "Hey, you know, there are no outstanding uh, issues here, but we just want to let them know." Don't paint on a walking mall. Did you stop? I, I did one other one. Basically, it was on a building way up high, and it got covered.
0: So to your process, um, I understand that you use pre-made stencils that you make so that when you're in the spots, what, under cover of darkness? Do you do this at night?
6: Yeah, you know, typically, yeah, okay. but it
0: varies. But that speeds up the process, right, to yeah. have done some of the work in advance and then to make the stencil. Yeah,
6: definitely.
0: <laughs> and then so how long might it take you to do, say, a cat? I saw a cat on like a kind of transformer electrical box. Yeah, you know, the cat that you're mentioning is
6: probably about 30, 35 hours of cutting. I think that one was five or six layers. It's a lot of work in terms of in the studio. But then when I get out there at night, eh, for that many layers, you know, it kind of depends on the color of the paint, but yeah, 45 minutes. Do people ever catch a glimpse of you? A couple people, yeah. What they're, have they
0: done? What have their reactions been? You well, know,
6: to be honest, for the most part, it's younger people. that will be out at night. And at this point, they're all like, oh, you smile. They run up, they give me a five. You know, one person gave me a candy bar. They want to invite me, to come to the bar, buy you a beer. So it's been overwhelmingly positive, to be honest.
0: You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and we're speaking with the Boulder street artist who goes by the name Smile. That's how he signs his work, which uh, is often illegally placed on public and private surfaces throughout Boulder. You know, Boulder's a small town, really. I know it's growing, but it, it still feels like a small town to me. Do you worry about your cover being blown? I mean, how much cover can you really have?
6: I don't really worry about it getting blown because I, the few people that do know me as the artist and as a person, they find it exciting. There's an excitement to either to know or to not know who the artist is. So I find people don't really want to tell others. It's sort of like, you know, my secret. Hey, I know who you are. Good work. You know,
0: keep it up. Right. But you're like one tweet of your photograph away from having that cover blown. Are you willing to go to jail for your work?
6: Well, I mean, with what I put on walls, I think the answer is yes, with the way I keep at it.
0: You were recently in Italy uh, with other street artists. Tell me about this trip.
6: Yeah, you know, it was actually a lot more than I expected. It was an eye-opener in terms of the way that the community overtly embraces street art. This is Bologna? Yeah, Bologna, Florence, and Venice. But I noticed authorities over there Like, I showed up and I helped my friend about Pony, a street artist. He went out on a Sunday, middle of the day, painted a gigantic mural. It took him four hours. Cops would drive by. They don't care. So over there and, like, you know, I put up maybe 35 images in Bologna, Florence, Venice. From what I've heard, they're all still up.
0: How do you distinguish between street art and graffiti or tagging?
6: You know, graffiti and tagging, it's sort of a different cultures. And I think the graffiti and the tagging is more insular. They do it for each other. They do it to mark turf, you know, mark territory.
0: Right, like the messages aren't readily accessible to the average Joe. Yeah, which,
6: exactly. And they have a little bit of a competition and they'll cover each other up. You know, in Bologna, apparently there's a giant brawl, a street fight between different tagging groups. So it's more antagonistic. Whereas street artists, I think... Maybe we're older. I don't know what it is. But there seems to be a little more respect for each other's art uh, and cooperation.
0: What do your parents think of you
6: at doing this? You know, once they find well, actually, my mother called me and said, hey, I'm seeing the stuff around town. Looks like the stuff you used to draw.
7: <laughs>
6: <laughs> That's how she found out. But they're, they evolved into liking it. They're happy about it. At first, they're a little bit like, what are you doing? You know, don't go to jail. You think you're Banksy? But now they're totally in on it.
0: Banksy, is he an idol?
6: Uh. Yeah. I mean, he definitely inspired, but I think he basically inspired anyone that does street art. But yeah, I like the fact that he's still anonymous, I think is awesome. That's like, ideally, I could just be smile forever and
0: stay anonymous. Do you want to take this work to a larger sphere? I mean, Banksy has been seen all over, well, his work has been seen all over the world. Yeah, I would. I would like to. I'm not
6: sure what that entails, but I enjoy traveling. You know, I'm meeting with street artists elsewhere, and it's something I'd like to grow into, for sure.
0: You have a day job? Yeah. And I won't ask you where that is. It would obviously give something of you away. Thank you for being with us. Thank you for having me. Boulder street artist Smile from earlier this year. He would only talk if we disguised his voice. Our conversation was a 2017 listener favorite.
5: Smile, though your heart is aching,
6: smile even though it's breaking, when there are clouds in the sky, you'll get by.
0: When she picks up her mail, Kathy Wilbert doesn't get the usual bills and supermarket ads. No, she gets carefully crafted prose written by prisoners. Wilbert is one of two teachers our education reporter Jenny Brundine visited at Adams State University. The school in Alamosa has a top-ranked prison correspondence program. Kathy Wilbert has just come in from the mailbox. One, two,
3: three, four... Five, six, seven, eight in today's mail.
8: The envelopes are from all over. A penitentiary in Fort Leavenworth, Nevada's Ely State Prison, a correctional facility in Colorado. Inside the envelopes are pages of essays or poems or memoirs. He's He's
3: working on his long argumentative research paper.
8: This writer's topic is whether to end the rhinoceros trade. Wolbert painstakingly goes over the copy.
3: My comment, vague, be specific. What's your source?
8: She suggests revisions, asks for sources. She'll put it in an envelope and send it back. If prisoners don't have money for a self-addressed stamped envelope, Wolbert takes care of it. There are just a handful of universities nationwide offering prison-based correspondence programs. Adams State offers among the most diverse range of courses and degree programs. It also allows the longest time to complete and is the cheapest. Wilbert says many colleges, in fact, have dropped print-based correspondence courses.
3: Because it's so 20th century, probably.
8: (laughs) But, she says, because so many prisoners can't access computers, it's the only way they can get an education.
3: And it's in pencil.
8: Many, like this one, write meticulously by hand, using prison-issued inch-long pencils. This prisoner writes in his cover letter that he tried to capture the brutality of prison, while explaining how he's grown as a person. Fellow instructor Carol Guerrero Murphy reads,
5: It's hard to explain to another person the idea that I've learned to speak French in the same cell where two separate murders have taken place. It's a cold and hostile environment, but I've also experienced some profound joys and experiences here. The dimmest lights shine brightest in the darkest places, and I've learned to appreciate those dim lights as inspiration. The fact that I'm almost certainly going to die here is something that's hard to escape even for a second.
8: Kathy Wolbert says in her stack of mail, there's real talent.
5: The
3: good ones, what they put into it is so off the charts compared to, you know, your regular run-of-the-mill student. It really is. You are the
5: oxygen that stales bread. Rusts the gate and blooms the blood slit from my wrists to red.
8: Carol Guerrero Murphy reads a poem at a public reading of the prisoners' works in Alamosa. Some students have spent dozens of years in solitary confinement or are in prison for life. And this is a piece called Time Minds. In this piece, the author writes about the nature of time inside prison.
3: In prison, time has a violently explosive effect. It obliterates parts of your personality such that you often find yourself trapped in a world of blunted emotions and dulled memories. Time brings about the loss of self through its very passage.
8: He writes that time creates little unexpected landmines that annihilate memory. One day, he was looking through his window slot at the clump of 39 pine trees outside his cell. It was the day he believed freedom and the outside world no longer existed.
3: With an explosion of emotion, tears welled up in my eyes and I sobbed as I realized that time had stolen the world. It was gone and all I had left was a polarized backdrop of 39 pines.
8: Another prisoner writes about how unfree he was outside of prison, bound by social pressures and rigid codes of behavior. For the first time in his life, prison brought freedom. Kathy Wolbert says this freedom allows some students to start to come to terms with the crimes they've committed.
3: Some of the students are writing really bluntly and honestly about their own shock that they were in such a bad state that killing the next three people that they encountered was no big deal. Now they have perspective on that. So for them, there's something that needs to be exercised and something paid back, something deep that they need to pay
8: back. Both teachers say giving prisoners access to education is not about forgetting the victims or avoiding consequences. Writing, they believe, can be a model of restorative justice. For those who will return to society, they say writing allows the students to think and feel deeply, which is the start of empathy. I'm Jenny Brendine, Colorado Public Radio News.
0: Finally today, a viral song parody that did not sit well with the original creators. Last month, YouTube personality Logan Paul uploaded a video that lampoons Handlebars, which was a big hit for the Denver hip-hop group Flowbots. This is their original track from 2007.
4: I can ride my bike with no handlebars, no
6: handlebars, no handlebars. Look at me, look at me, hands in the air like it's good to be alive. And I'm a famous rapper, even when the paths are all crookadee. I can
4: show you how to do doe do I can show you how to scratch a record.
0: But the YouTube parody, which has more than 27 million views, takes the song in a decidedly sexual direction, with Logan Paul surrounded by women riding bikes in skimpy clothing. I can ride your girl with no handlebars.
3: I can ride your girl with no handlebars your girl with She in fifth gear, I'm 10-speed Not my fault, she text me Suede seat, my rim's deep My Schwinn beat that Bentley She ride the peg, still in her heels She fall in love, head over wheels New chain, I don't mean necklace I ride no hands, I'm reckless Cycling on your
0: check Flowbots say that diverges drastically from the song's original message of empowerment and equality And they're especially frustrated given that Paul's video coincides with the Me Too movement The national conversation about respect for women So Flowbots felt compelled to respond, musically, of course. Now,
6: normally I'm pretty conflict avoidant. Just ignore s if it's just annoying. I don't write a diss track about Stranger Things episode 7. I just be like, that's disappointed. But recently I was just acquainted with a young man, maybe once fan of ours. Hey, look,
3: this guy's covering
6: handlebars. Oh, that's cool, what you're saying is bars. Um,
3: instead of my bike, he says your girl. Oh,
6: that's really clever. Oh, it gets even better. Oh, naturally, these days it has to be thoroughly crafted to be busy fashionable. Oh, yeah, you have to see this. His masterpiece is like a master thesis. In this project, he concocts a fascinating twist of logic. Describes a woman's body like it's just an object. <laughs>
4: Watch out, hold
6: up, hold up. I think that's been
4: done.
6: Oh, yeah,
7: well, maybe, yeah.
3: I think that's been done. Yeah, been yeah dumb. I guess so. I won't hold it against dumb. Oh, really? Why not? Because he's just 21. Right.
0: Flowbots with Handle Your Bars, striking back at YouTuber Logan Paul's No Handlebars, which ripped from Flowbots' Handlebars. Their response video so far has 1.5 million views, just a fraction of the parody. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News.